0: blues for big town when I started all of that I was I was a promoter promoter primarily well that's a that's what I really did for uh, I'd say 95% of the time that I was in the business but I became more of a generalist from a standpoint of uh, stage managing doing some media work uh, doing some uh, agency or booking work so I've As time went on, and it was was harder and harder for for me as an independent promoter to be successful on a a number of fronts, I decided to do other things. Um, And I became what I guess I would term a generalist. Okay, so I'm talking to Rico Ferrara, who is a generalist.
1: (laughs) And also, above and beyond everything, I think he's a huge fan of music. Um, who is so dedicated to the, the musicians that he loves and the music that he loves that I could ask him any question. He will tell me what studio it was recorded on, who played bass, whatever. So um, thank you for coming and talking to me about your
0: life in music. Well, I'm, I'm really pleased that you asked me. I'm kind of uh, flattered, actually.
1: You just talk, talked about Blueswood Big Town, and I want to get to that. But let's go back to your childhood. Where were you raised?
0: Uh, in Port Colbert which is in the Niagara peninsula uh, i guess uh w- what would be familiar to someone uh that's in clo- cl- close proximity i guess it would be Niagara falls or Niagara- not far from buffalo right
1: so you were more influenced in some ways as i know you from buffalo than maybe more than
0: toronto definitely uh actually uh except for some trips to toronto to see some uh specific uh uh, music. Uh, all my music appreciation was really in Buffalo. Uh,
1: and, and went where to did...
0: various clubs there. Uh, I Saw pretty well anyone that I was interested in. I saw in Buffalo, and there were, there was a time too when there was a lot of uh, U.S. acts that wouldn't come to Canada, um, and I'm, just didn't have the opportunity to see them in Toronto. And, and the other thing I know about you is that you're a huge Cleveland Browns fan. <laughs> <laughs> you to hold that against me. Is that is how's that, that, a point that, how's of that going? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you—I mean, I could go so deep into that and bore you so much because but, I've been a fan since I was
1: ten years old. And and does the proximity of Port Coburn has to do with
0: that. Well, yeah, definitely, uh, because uh, of course at the time, like you didn't have all the uh, various uh, stations. I mean, you had ABC, you had NBC, and you had CBS. And uh, the way that it worked was, um, uh, and this was before Buffalo Bills were were on the scene, the NFL team that was in closest proximity was who you saw every Sunday. So I saw the Browns like every Sunday, no matter where they played. And I grew up with Jim Brown. Grew up with uh, Frank Ryan and Milt Plum and uh, all of when when the Browns were something. <laughs> they last won a championship before it was a Super Bowl in 1964, and uh, just as an aside, I found, uh, and I've been searching for it for years. Uh, I found uh, a DVD of that season 1964 as well as the as the title game and uh, I was watching it with uh, our two boys and I actually remembered plays I said this is what's going to come up next and our oldest David said just shook his head and said I don't know pops I don't know if you've got a life <laughs> so was that the last great moment for
1: the Browns
0: 64? Well, it was the last time that they won anything of, of any significance. I mean, um, they were in the playoffs during the 80s and that, but nothing. Right. Uh, nothing that uh, would match uh, winning the championship.
1: Well, at least you had that and you still remember it.
0: Well, no, but the way that I look at it is that. That's even worse than being a Toronto Maple Leaf fan because they won in 67. The Browns won in 64, so it's even longer. <laughs> Good point. <laughs> How did music come into your life? Well, um, I was a product at the time, I think. Um, I, I think it was part of my generation. Uh, you know, radio was still really big. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm going to... I'm going to betray my age here. Uh, We're going back to the 50s, but uh, obviously TV was on the scene, but radio was everywhere. And and radio being Buffalo radio? Uh, Buffalo radio uh, specifically, but uh, there was radio everywhere. Like there was local radio station and music was everywhere. And it was the time that, uh, I mean, people still uh, listen to the radio uh, for entertainment. Mm -hmm. And it was a time when, you know, transistor radios were really big. People wanted to have a radio to carry with them everywhere they went. And as I say, music was all around. And I I think what really factored into that was was the radio stations themselves. Uh, From a standpoint that, uh, payola aside, (laughs) there, there wasn't... Sure, they played the hits of the day, but there wasn't a program playlist per se, and the DJs were personalities, mm-hmm. and what they played was part of what characterized them, which was is a whole other story, I guess. But um, the thing about it w- was that uh, people were exposed to quite a wide palette. You could hear Conway Twitty one minute, uh, the next minute it would be Fats Domino, Patsy Klein uh, after that. So. Uh, it it was all over the place. Uh, there was all kinds of genres, and really, uh, and I I guess it's part of you know uh, being a music junkie and being young. There were no barriers to enjoying the music. Mm-hmm. You heard it all the time. Uh, there, you could get into it is you could could appreciate it on many levels. You didn't have to know who the artist was, uh, where they were from, what label they were on, unless, of course, it was important to you. Right. And if you were really welcoming and open, there was no color distinction. I mean, outside of uh, the obvious instances, sometimes you'd have to wait to see them on TV, American Bandstand or something like that, to even see if they were black or white or whatever well it was it was black and white because there wasn't there you didn't get the international scope right. that that you get today
1: do you remember the first thing that just the first song or a moment where music just caught on we thought wow this is interesting i need to learn more about this
0: i don't know if there was a specific moment uh, there were certainly elvis presley was huge mm-hmm. um uh, just to digress for a second, I keep saying that people of our generation were really fortunate. Uh, they had two huge musical phenomenas happen, like Elvis Presley and the Beatles. Like Who else would grow up and, and be able to experience something like that? Right. And Elvis Presley was, was huge, uh, uh, not only his music, his attitude but also there was, I remember there was Elvis Presley merchandise. Mm-hmm. You'd go on, I'd be on my way to school and there was uh, there was the local grocery there and I could buy an Elvis Presley pencil. that said, <laughs> sincerely yours, Elvis Presley. And it came in a variety of colors. If you were a girl, you could get a pink one. If you were uh, a boy, you could get a black one or a blue one. And there were Elvis Presley trading cards. Like there's no Drake trading cards, I don't think. <laughs> but that whole attitude uh, uh, that he had, you know, uh, it, it, that rebellious thing, really hit a nerve. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it, I mean, that was that whole rockabilly thing was was really strong, really strong. But I I was all over the place genre-wise until I sort of. Uh, uh, because country music was really big when I was a kid. I loved Patsy Cline uh, mm-hmm. until I honed into R&B. And that sort of opened up a whole new world.
1: Did you, Was there even distinction between one and the other back then?
0: There was no distinction. That's what was so great about it. It was, uh, like I said, there's no barriers. You could mm-hmm. enjoy it on any level. There was any categorizations or... Um, but I mean to you, like... A, you know you said country
1: was big like w- would you have been quite aware that this was country and this wasn't this is was not own- really
0: no i i i guess to a certain degree but not really like uh, th- there were there was a lot of well rockabilly w- was was such a, uh, I don't know you know uh, i can't i can't jump on the right word amalgamator if, if for anything because you could get country as part of rockabilly you could get R&B is part of rockabilly. Um, when you heard Jack Scott uh, saying The Way I Walk, I mean, there's a lot of blues in that. Uh, there's a lot of that, I don't know, there's a lot of country in it. There, it's, it, it certainly is more rural than it is urban. And it, it, it took me some time to sort of get into that Sense that there was an urban feel to the song, mm-hmm. or or to the music, and some of that came with uh, uh, with Dion. Dion was very huge. Dion's still big with me, <laughs> and uh, he brought a lot of that attitude, and obviously borrowed a lot from uh, people like. Uh, Roy Orbison, he borrowed a lot from Elvis, certainly um, but it was more urban because it uh, that whole do-op thing uh, you didn't you do that on the street corner well I'm I'm visualizing for myself, <laughs> but I can't see them doing that on the street corner of Clarksville, Mississippi right uh, but I can see them doing it in the Bronx and in, and in Brooklyn and then it, and that was just, Again, it was it was forceful, like it it was it was willful, like uh, the the braggadocio was, was tremendous, and and the thing like and now that I, you look back and now all of the information comes out, when Dion was singing about being a teenager in, uh, in love, he was a full blown junkie. Like he'd started experimenting with with uh, smack when he was fourteen. It's uh, it's amazing to me, just amazing.
1: So, what was it about R and B, like that? Just that you decide that you want to kind of pursue that road or go down that road more than the others? I
0: I, I guess you start to differentiate between, uh, again, for lack of better terms, sort of novelty. Mm-hmm relative to having some real basic urges needs that people have i mean the human condition i guess it wasn't superficial Mm -hmm. like even the motown stuff in later years um uh, and and motown motown is is probably as uh, uh, Crossover as you can get as far as R&B is concerned, even even Motown uh, dug deeper than a lot of the stuff that you heard on mainstream radio. Right. And you know you could start with Motown, but uh, when you get to Stacks and all of the stuff that came out of Southern Soul, which is really sort of it hits me where I live as far uh, for lack of better terms um, there's there's nothing in terms of getting to the feeling getting that, that raw emotion than Southern Soul does I mean I remember do, uh, do you remember that station CKLW, Windsor Detroit Station mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it was a hit making station right. probably Paola <laughs> uh, probably worked its way into there but I can still remember the first time they played When a Man Loves a Woman. And when you hear that plaintive organ open up, I remember hearing it and then going, immediately you knew it was serious. Right. And then you hear Percy Sledge, and, when you, and you, immediately it connects. Like, this is, this is as, uh, this comes from the gut. Like this is as real and as primal as it'll ever get um how old were you when you heard that first time uh, i was 15 and I, and and that song grabbed a hold i mean it was I, I even someone as vanilla as billy joel i remember reading an interview with him and he said i can't imagine being a teenager and and not growing up with when a man loves a woman right. i mean Uh, you take that you take Dark End of the Street and really they're sort of the pinnacle of of what Southern Soul is all about one is uh, uh, aching and longing and one is stealing love (laughs) I mean it's it's pretty basic it doesn't get much more basic than that did you ever pursue music as a player (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I was in a band from when I was uh, 15 till I was about 20, maybe 21. Um, actually, I I was a singer in a soul band for most of that time. Loved it. I was probably played it, did it terribly. But uh, yeah, that that, I mean, I think that this is going to be personal opinion, but I think everybody's a frustrated singer. Mm -hmm. And I think everybody in their heart of hearts would like to be someone that gets up in front of a crowd and wows them by singing. Now, I'm not a musician. So uh, I can't, I can never relate to someone. I mean, I certainly appreciate, uh, you know, a really good guitar player or, or a really good guitar solo or whatever. But again, the vocal is is so human. It's so basic. Mm-hmm. And I think that everybody can sing. Some people just sing better than others. <laughs> um,
1: was it just a hobby or
0: did you think one day I will be a musician? I thought one day I was going to be a musician until I found out how much work it was. <laughs> <laughs> Because Which is true. Well, yeah, I mean, it's very easy. Well, uh, easy might not be the right term, but it's convenient to be able to mimic or ape or copy someone's singing style. Like you hear a song on the radio, and you, uh, if you hear it enough and uh, if you sing it enough, you can pick up the inflections. But to develop your own phrasing, to develop your own style, that's extremely difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, like if you heard Otis Redding sing, there, there's no question it's Otis. Right. And 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 uh, to be recognizable like that, I, that's gold. I mean, th- there's so many copyists out there that. How many of them? I keep asking. How many of them are truly original? How many people have borrowed from Sam Cooke? Mm-hmm. Even Solomon Burke talked about when he did "Got to Get You Off My Mind." It was a Sam Cooke song, and when, and if you listen to the last verse of that song, that could be Sam. Like it's it's funny. It takes for me. It's sort of like okay, I'm Solomon Burke. Now now I don't care. It's a Sam Cooke song and. And when he, especially when he sings that song, uh, ru- sings that line, rock my soul. Like the way he says it is the way Sam would have sang it. It's, um, I don't know. I, 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 uh, I find singing very cerebral uh, from a standpoint that uh, there are some singers, uh, I mean, if you've got a hook and you can stay within a melody, that's great. But there are some singers that, you know, I don't know where they get them. I don't know how they hang the song together, how they get the melody. There, there's a singer who I just, uh, and I'm very late to the party, um, who, um, I think he died in the 70s. His name is Johnny Hartman. The way I came about Johnny Hartman was, uh, I'm, a, I'm a big Boss Skaggs fan, as you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, his second jazz album uh, is called Speak Low, Boss. Anyway, I was reading a review of it, and he said that he borrowed a lot of his phrasing from Johnny Hartman. Johnny Hartman, I think, was from Chicago. I, uh, anyway, I, um, I picked up, uh, I read reviews, and I picked up a couple of his albums. I don't know where he gets the melody, but he hooks you because the, the voice is beautiful in the first place. But the way he does the twists and turns, his phrasing, the, the, the articulation is like he must just have spent a lot of time on each song and and not only is it the meaning of the song, it's the sound of the of the uh, it's not only the meaning of the lyric it's the sound of the lyric and i've been listening to him a lot lately and i just i just shake my head like where, where does this come from hmm. i mean that does someone taught him this is this someone that's this something, something that's innate w- with him i i just i think he's i think he's great johnny hartman johnny hartman um going back
1: to your musical career just the experience of playing in a band I don't know to what level how much you played live or whatever but what did that experience teach you?
0: To me it was just an extension of my love of music really I mean plus I'm a Capricorn I like uh, I, I'm, I'm a megalomaniac from a certain <laughs> standpoint uh, Did it make you appreciate music differently? Uh Certainly, from a vocal perspective, it definitely did. Uh, From an arrangement perspective, it definitely did. Um, We played every weekend, virtually every weekend from September through to the school year was finished. And uh, sometimes, if you're lucky, you played during the summer as well. But I played a lot Mm -hmm. Uh, over the course of five years had a lot of experience playing live um, what was really just as sort of a sidebar what was really interesting to me is when I was promoting uh, shows I got to see I got to see people up close and personal especially the way I did it Uh, I would be traveling and working with an act for three or four nights in a row. Mm -hmm. So you saw the way that they, you saw the way that they shaped their show. You could tell the people who really were into it and you could tell the mood of the act. You could tell the ones that really sensed if the audience was different. Uh, You could see how, a song may have developed from one night to the other. And our band got together for a reunion, a high school reunion. Mm-hmm. And it was, uh, they had a tough time talking me into doing it. And the reason was there was a lot of apprehension because I'd seen some really great singers up close and personal. <laughs> yeah. And all of a sudden, I was going to sing again. I had, uh, plus, I had to learn to sing on mic and sing uh, and learn to sing all over again. But I remember talking to Tad Robinson about this, because Tad and I were talking, and he says, you must be a musician. You have to be a musician. And I said, no, I'm not. He says, no, no. He says, the, you're a businessman, I can tell, but there's there's a love of the music. He said, the only musicians I can reach. Mm-hmm. And um, I said, well, I'm embarrassed to say I was an R&B singer. And he said, why are you embarrassed? I said, well, because I've been listening to <laughs> you. <laughs> and I had another instance. Uh, Reba Russell, who uh, is a friend of mine, uh, we're... I can't remember if it was email or a phone call, but uh, no, it was an email because it would have been tougher in the phone call. Uh, she said in the email, she said, I had a dream about you last night because we we had been talking a lot because I had just booked her at tampa, Tampa mm-hmm. Bay Festival. So we've been talking a lot. and she says i had a I had a really vivid dream about you last night. She said, I dreamed that I was at the Blues Music Awards and you got up on stage and you sang with me. (laughs) And I said, well, that's that's really out there. And she said, no, she said, it was really so strong. And I said, well, you know, okay, I'll fess up. I used to be, uh, I used to fancy myself as a singer when I was a kid. And she said, I knew it. I knew you were a musician because only musicians treat other musicians the way you treat it. you treat musicians. And I went, wow, yeah. that's a nice compliment. A, a nice compliment. Yes. Um, going forward, and you, re,
1: you referred to this a little bit, so you, you decided to promote music. From, so I guess I presume that you, you joined a band, you played, you decided you didn't want to pursue that as a career, went to, continued on with his school, found a, a business, or became a businessman. Ooh, does that sound bad or yeah. what? No, um, and then but you always had the pursuit of the love of music throughout this whole time, and then one day I presume you decided, hey, let's put on a
0: show. Well, it was it was sort of uh, a, a lot of things uh, uh, came into play. Um, it was a, a time in my life where I'd been in marketing for x number of years not that i had done everything but i just it's it's hard to say but i sort of always saw myself as an imposter when i was in the music business because it wasn't me the real me was a music junkie and because it it was the proverbial soundtrack of my life kind of thing Mm -hmm. as weird as that may sound or whatever and uh, there, there, were, there were just, uh, the time was right for me to make a break. Uh, and, and luckily enough, um, Deb, who uh, uh, I've been with for over 40 years now, she was very supportive. Sometimes we joke that she was so supportive because she saw how miserable I was <laughs> in the, as a marketer, that uh, you know she wanted me to do anything else. <laughs> And uh, so, really, it was a love of music. And I, and I, I thought, well, if I'm going to do something about music, what am I going to do? I'm not a musician. So with the fact that it's sort of the soundtrack for my life, and uh, I wanted, uh, and, and it, was, it was very natural, well, uh, I've got this love of music, plus, Uh, I had been traveling to Memphis, and I'd seen some different uh, artists that weren't um, mainstream from a standpoint of of having some recognition, who I, I realized in a lot of ways were as good as some of the bigger names. I thought, I'm going to be a promoter. Uh, this is a way to do it. I can, I can uh, showcase these people. I can be in the music business. And it's going to be exciting for me because it'll be a new learning. And I don't have to be an imposter anymore because there are no rules. So I'm going to make up my rules as I go along. Mm-hmm. I'm going to promote who I want to promote. Um, and it's going to be uh, an outlet or something I have a lot of passion for which for 20 years I mean obviously I had some passion uh, in the market in in marketing but it wasn't s- something that I could personalize if that's the word right
1: so you so you decided to go into vote what did you expect to accomplish by doing so
0: Oh, I was hoping to make money, <laughs> which was a you know I can laugh about now, but uh, it was, certainly was a character builder from that perspective. But uh, I wanted what I wanted to accomplish was I wanted to be part of the music business, and what I wanted to accomplish was I wanted people to um, certainly. Uh, you're you're looking for you know someone to say hey you know that it was a great show and everything, uh, but I, I really wanted to put the music forward. Right. Um, I wanted to. I, yeah, I wanted to. I wanted to showcase. I, I didn't uh, I didn't look for me, to, be on the marquee. I was the one who made it possible. Right. And it was good enough for me for people to come uh, to come over to the show and say, "Wow, that was a great show!" Or where'd you find this guy? Uh, or where'd you, f- uh, you know, like uh, the, it, the there was something to be said for introducing someone to Canada for the first time. Right. <clears throat> uh, I like to tell the story about. Um, The first time I had brought Deanna Bogart to Canada. Uh, Deanna had never been in Canada. Uh, I think at the silver dollar the first time I had her there, I think I had 35 paid. And I kept bringing Deanna back, and she built a following here in Toronto Mm -hmm. where we, we could actually fill the silver dollar there's a lot of people that came up to me and told me that they were at that first show. And there was a hell of a lot more than 35 <laughs> people that told me that. <laughs> but that, that made me feel good because I, I, I think Deanna is, is a supreme talent. And For the sure. fact that I, I was able to at least establish her in a new market, I think was kind of cool.
1: Well I mean I, you know I learned a lot from the musicians that you brought in um, and and uh, you know not everybody but most of them tended to be amazing vocalists like it comes you know. back
0: to the frustrated singer it <laughs> But really, really does. when
1: you think about the people you've worked with like Curtis Salgado, Shigbery Norcia, Tad Robinson like these are
0: they're all they're all fabulous vocalists Yeah Diana
1: Everybody, yeah. So, um, but the first concert you put on, do you want to talk about that? Boz Skaggs. Yeah. So, this is Boz Skaggs at Massey Hall. Yes. This is the first concert. <clears throat> this is not a small thing.
0: No. <laughs> this and, is big. Uh, and uh, uh, first of all, I have to say I did it with more than just a little help from Gary Cornier. Uh, uh, there, there was a lot of things that came into play. Sorry, uh, can
1: we just talk about Gary as well? Because Gary has been in the scene in, in Toronto quite a bit. Oh. Just for people who don't know who Gary Cormier is.
0: Yeah, uh, he was... Uh, p- people might recognize the two Garys. Right. Uh, he basically... Uh, well, the police picnics, that was the, the Garys. Uh, the punk scene, which is really interesting because Gary has such a... Uh, an eclectic appreciation of music. Uh, He established punk here in the city. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, when you go, I remember going, the first time going over to have a meeting with him and opera was playing in the background. And he told me stories of uh, of uh, bringing Lightning Hopkins to Toronto. Uh, which is, I got to tell this story because I think it's a great story. Um, he, and, he and Gary Topp both were all over the place in terms of their appreciation of music. And they would put, it was sort of like Bill Graham would put, you know, Miles Davis and the Steve Miller band together or something. Right. And they, they would do stuff like that, but they wanted to do a blues show so uh, they thought, well, we're going to do a show with John Hammond, but we got to find somebody who uh, has some real credibility in the blues scene. So I thought, well, let's get Lightnin' Hopkins. And now Lightnin' Hopkins is, is an old man. He's, for all intents and retired. He's, he's. Uh, uh for all yeah for all intents and purposes he's retired so they did some digging around and they found a guy who lived i think two doors down who had a phone because lightning hopkins didn't have a phone and uh so they said well you know yeah we could i can get lightning hopkins over here so they decided as to what time of day they were going to uh get him on the phone. So they, uh, he says, uh, Gary, uh, Cormier says he's on the phone. He says, here he comes, he's coming through the aisle. And And he said, you could hear the screen door creaking and you could hear the chickens (laughs) from the barnyard in the background. And he comes on and he says, well, you know, I don't know. And uh, Cormier says, don't worry about it. We're gonna fly you here. We're gonna pick you up at the airport. Like, we're gonna take care of you. You don't have to do anything. You just have to play. And so they finally convinced him that he's going to play. Same time, uh, they go back to John Hammond, uh, to his uh, manager, and say, Well, okay, so we've put the show together. You're going to open for Lightning Hopkins. So John Hammond's manager says, No, said, uh, John will be headlining. And Cormier says, well, this, we're talking about Lightning Hopkins. He says, John will be headlining. He says, okay, let's settle this. Let's have John Hammond Sr. make the decision, <laughs> which I thought was so ballsy. John Hammond opened for Lightning Hopkins. <laughs> I thought that was just that was such a fabulous story. So going back, you
1: decide <laughs> to put on your first show And then you decide that it will be at Massey Hall, and it would be Boss Why such a big show?
0: Well, I thought, uh, again, uh, I thought I was a corporate marketer, I guess, from a standpoint that I wanted to make a big splash. Mm -hmm. I thought I could get some immediate credibility. Blues for a Big Town would have a name. Right. Um, there were a lot of things that were wrong with the show. Uh, Cormier told me, he said, you know, like, Buzz hasn't been to the city since, uh, when was it, 1977? Um, you're a fan. Uh, he's put this great album out, you tell me. That uh, come on home, by the way. Right, which is a great um, album. Uh, he's back on the scene, but it's been too long. And we don't have enough time to promote this. We really don't have enough time. And I just thought, well, it's Boss Skaggs. <laughs> You know, I got stars in my eyes. You know, like, this is Boz Skaggs. This isn't just somebody. As it turns out, uh, the show didn't go as well as expected. But it did a few things for me. Automatically, people were going, who's Rico Ferrara? Who's Blues for a Big Town? Like, who would have the balls to bring mm-hmm. uh, Boz Skaggs to Massey Hall as their first show? And... I should back up for a second, because like the blues business, um, very tight-knit group, there weren't a lot of people who would talk to me. Cormier was managing uh, the Phoenix at the time. And I called him up and I said, here's who I am. I said, I just want to talk to you. I talked to two or three people and Cormier brought me into his office. And he said, so, you're, you're in corporate marketing. He said, so, you understand financials. He said, let's go through a promoter's financial. I said, Gary, why are you doing this? He said, because your heart's in it. he said, and I can show you how to do it, but you still have to do it. Right. So, <clears throat> all of a sudden, I had Cormier, who is... But this is somebody you really don't know. I don't know him. I know of him. But all of a sudden, I I feel like I'm in a position of strength. And Cormier agrees to ride shotgun. As it turns out, he does more than ride shotgun on on this project. And uh, with that, I'm I'm feeling, as I say, uh, in a position of strength. So I feel like I can put this show on and with gary pushing actually pushing me in the right direction and everything i put the show on and it was a respectful a respectable uh, uh crowd not as big as we would liked it to be but as i say it immediately established me mm-hmm. and not only did it establish me um, in terms of maybe a little bit with the audience but also the people in the blues community right and i think that when they saw that i was doing this they saw i was very sincere and uh, they thought well if someone's going to go big like this their intention is to be around for a while and i think that that was part of the reason that i didn't break through at the outset because there's probably been people coming and going, you know, right. put on a show and you don't see them tomorrow. Yeah. And, you know, they're not going to be part of the scene, so why should I waste my time with them? And uh, so anyway, I had people like Gary Kendall who was who was fabulous. Gary was uh, was right there. Well, okay, well, we'll you know, I want to do some shows at the Silver Dollar. And Gary was there in terms of helping me, in terms of logistics for the dollar. Uh, yeah, logistics in terms of the way things happen financially and stuff like that. He opened the door for me here. Right. Um, so it, the, that's really, I guess, going back to the original question, that's what the Boss Skaggs thing was all about and what, what it brought to me and for me. So when...
1: When you didn't get the numbers that you expected, I presume you might have lost some money. Yes. Did you, what, what was the feeling behind, did you think, okay, I know I can do better? Or like, how did you feel when you found out that the, you had lost a little bit of money? Or, or was that just the
0: reality of putting on shows as far as you were concerned? I, the, the excellent question. Because I was a novice. I didn't know what to expect. I thought, I immediately thought that, okay, um, I've gone big. I've I've not really learned a lot of the nuances. So I'm going to go and and do clubs. Mm -hmm. So at that point in time, I decided, I thought I was going to be an agent. And I tried to sell some of the acts that uh, I had personally discovered, they were obviously uh, discovered uh, for myself, I mean. And I found a lot of the club owners, a lot of the bookers didn't know the business from a artist standpoint, the way I knew the business. They were more from, well, is it gonna sell? I'm not gonna buy this show. I've never heard of Tracy Nelson, which I just like, really? I've not heard of Tracy Nelson, so I'm not going to buy this show. So, I remember saying to Deb, I said, "Well, I got to put these shows on for myself." So it was okay. I had the silver dollar, which I could do the show. But I've got to get these guys willing to come over to to come to Canada for one show. It's not going to happen. Right. So, I. I uh, decided, well, okay, what logically works? I want to make my big show in Toronto on Saturday. So I, I talked to Danny Sevier at the Rainbow Bistro in Ottawa and convinced him that I should put on shows there. So I would do the shows in Ottawa on Thursday. And then John Greco... Uh, who owned the the Red Dog in Peterborough, who had been doing shows, been doing blues shows, uh, but all local stuff. I convinced him that I should do shows there. So uh, that was, Mm -hmm. as RJ Spangler called it, the blues for a big town circuit. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, It was Ottawa, uh, Peterborough, and Toronto. There, there were some hurdles. There were some barriers. In Ottawa, I was an out-of-town guy. I didn't know the media people. I'd started to know the media people in Toronto. I, uh, you know, Lenny uh, Stute from uh, from the Star would always put something in, or Jeff Chapman, would put something in. In Peterborough, it's a very small community. I got to know the media there, so I would always get something there. Ottawa was a fight. They didn't like the and I. I I'm saying this from my perspective, I don't think that initially they appreciated that this Toronto guy was coming in and doing shows in Ottawa. Right. So there were were some barriers or hurdles, uh, but I persevered and I was doing a couple shows a month at each of those venues. And then I branched out a little bit more. I got to know uh, people in Quebec uh, so that if it was an ideal show for me, I would sell the show in Quebec City on the Tuesday, sell it in Montreal on the Wednesday. Then I would pick it up myself, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Sometimes had a sun uh, at a, a Sunday in Kitchener, or uh, well, Kitchener primarily. Mm-hmm. But so that's what I did. So uh, for an agent, it was like working with a distributor. uh, I would broker the deal for all of these shows. So uh, it was like a one-stop shop as far as the agents were concerned. And I have to say um, a couple of the agents were, it was very tough breaking in with them as well because they didn't know me from anywhere. And um, so there there was a barrier or hurdle there as well. But that's but that's part of yeah. part of getting into a business and establishing yourself. Right.
1: And if I'm not mistaken, for the most part, I would think that most musicians who have dealt with you, and this is the part that I really respect about you, is the fact that from what I can tell, majority of the musicians who have dealt with you are very grateful for the way you've treated them. And if they've worked with you once, they're probably going to work with you again. Um, and it's an industry where you don't get that sense all the time, where people establish a friendship. But I know that you have like this partnership with many musicians you brought across.
0: Well, I, I realized Im- immediately that it was a personal business. Mm-hmm. It's a very personal business, and it, and I'm uh, I'm talking about the blues business primarily, and and it's a small community, and. Um, Word travels, and obviously, if it's bad news, it travels quicker. Right. Um, you, uh, you, if you, if you piece together my love of music, if you uh, piece together um, the fact that uh, I know it's a personal business, and and I want to be as fair and as sincere as, as possible that's where it comes from um, and I th- I think that that comes back to you mm-hmm. it always comes back to you uh, from a standpoint that they I think the musicians always knew that I wanted to uh, put them in the best position to do their best show and being a personal business it's it's hard not to get to know some of these people on a personal level right and i i've had a number of instances where uh, i know that they're doing the show only because i'm involved Mm -hmm. Uh, i can say that truthfully from doing uh, uh, the blues festival for 10 years right I felt bad in a lot of instances because I didn't uh, have a big budget. And I would just tell them, you know, like, I, this is the money I have. I'm not negotiating. And they knew I wasn't negotiating. Mm-hmm. Like I, I'm going to give you as much money as I can as the budget will allow or dictate. But this is it. And they say, well, okay, I'll do it. And it was only because I had a personal relationship. And I, I kept thinking, like, how long can I do this? How long can I uh, sort of, for lack of better terms, call in markers? Because uh, a lot of these musicians were very good to me uh, mm-hmm. in, in that instance in terms of um, doing a show when, when they should have gotten paid better.
1: But a lot of them wouldn't have had this territory, have had... A new fan base either if you hadn't brought them in and the, one could argue that there's some musicians you brought in who if you didn't bring them in they probably would have never played, played Toronto or peterborough or ottawa right so
0: i agreed i mean uh deanna bogart nobody was calling mm-hmm. Tad benoit nobody was calling um, tad robinson uh, clarence spadey um reba russell i mean the the whole thing with bringing bringing Reba here was, uh, I remember having uh, having discussion with her, and it was. I mean, she she had never been to Canada. She was good friends with she's good friends with Tracy Nelson, and Tracy said good things about Canada. But uh, and I've talked to Reba about this. Uh, the fact that. They would drive all the way from Memphis to do three dates here on my, on my recommendation or on my say-so for not a hell of a lot of money. But she's such a talent. She made money in the CD sales. Anyway, she made more money in CD sales than what she got paid at the shows. Um, and that just speaks to her talent, of course. Mm-hmm. But uh, the fact that I was able to, to do that with her it was uh, surprising, mind blowing. What's the word? When I think of promoting shows, I
1: think it's like the craziest thing because you're dealing with so many different variables. And it could be, you know, it could be the World Series, it could be the Stanley Cup champions, it could be the weather, it could be people going to a family wedding or whatever did that ever i mean obviously it occurred to you me? <laughs> yeah i mean it should have deterred me uh, it should have and and you would know way more things that come into that play where people might not show up like there's just so many different variables that it's easy for people to say i'm not going to go because of these 150 potential reasons
0: yeah it's uh, it's certainly frustrating and and certainly disappointing Um, and I think one of the, one of the things about putting the show on, I, I, I know, uh, that people arrive at a show and they see the lights go up and that's it. Mm -hmm. And, and really they shouldn't have to know anything more, but there's so much more that's going on beyond, behind the scenes, uh, in terms of, you know, negotiating with the act in terms of, uh, logistics, um, all of and and promoting promoting mm-hmm. is uh, I mean uh, promoting now is even more difficult right. you don't have you don't have a Jeff Chapman anymore writing about uh, the the blue show that's happening that week you don't have Errol Nazareth anymore uh, and you know th- there are certain things that I try to do uh, just to uh, uh, just sort of a sidebar in promoting, there were certain things that I tried to do. Uh, And I probably came from my corporate days, but uh, I did things the very same way. Like this is before social media, obviously, but uh, they always had a press release, uh, always had uh, an eight by 10, always had a copy of uh, the CD. So I conditioned uh, people in the media If they knew that something was coming from Blues for Big Town, they knew that those three things were going to be in there. Mm -hmm. So uh, it uh, it didn't leave a lot to chance. I mean, they're always obviously free to call me up for further information, but normally all the information they needed to write an article was there. You do it the same way every time. And you work hard every time, and you put posters up, because the posters were still something in a day. And it was disappointing from a standpoint that all you needed was, you know, 200 people in the room, Mm -hmm. and out of the millions of people that are in Toronto, and... When something would happen, you know, when you would draw 368 people for Bither Smith one week and but and and then draw 85 people the next week, and you've done things the, uh, the right way, right. and and it, it just boggled the mind that uh, you could be, you know, all the stars would line up in one instance and in this other time. Nothing would happen. But there's all these things that come into play. And I used to talk to people all the time and say, you know, <clears throat> the ticket's only 12 bucks or 15 bucks. Where can you do for entertainment for 12, 15 bucks? And I would get an assortment of things. Uh, one of the ones that used to come to me all the time, well, you know, if I'm going to come downtown, I'm not paying 15 bucks. I'm bringing my wife and my girlfriend, it's now 30 bucks. I gotta pay for parking, it's now another 10 bucks. So it's now 40 bucks. Um, if they had kids, I have to pay the, the babysitter. Uh, so it's not 15 or $30 anymore, it's plus, 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 right. plus. Uh, I used to get that. I uh, And I also used to get, well, I'm going to be buying beer like I'm already paying Mm -hmm. to see this. And and you'd have to explain to them, but I, I don't get the bar. I'm a promoter. This is my show, but I don't get anything from the bar. So the fact that you're going to spend money on four drinks means nothing to me, means something to the bar. Uh, but it means nothing to me. There, there, a lot of people couldn't differentiate or, 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 failed to understand that there was an independent promoter involved. Uh, if it was a silver dollar show, they thought it was a silver dollar show even though it said Blues for Big Town presents and all the posters uh, they didn't understand that and plus there and I'm not saying this was a large part, but there's there is there's a faction of the audience that just didn't feel that they should pay going to a bar. Mm-hmm. They would gladly pay, uh, 70, 80, 100, whatever it was to go to the ACC and see a big name. And uh, when they, if, if they, if they go to a bar, they, they immediately feel that this is not top notch, not top notch talent, and they shouldn't have to pay. When you're actually presenting an experience which is a lot more personal, um, is a lot more, f- I'm I'm obviously generalizing, and I'm 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 it's it's a biased point of view, but it's it, it's, it's certainly uh, more engaging. I mean, you're not going to go up to Bruce Springsteen and ask him to sign the poster. You're not going to go up to Bruce Springsteen and have him uh, sign a CD and actually talk to you. Right. Uh, Whereas, uh, uh, you, go, you go to a bar, uh, it's a, uh, they're communicating almost directly with everyone in the room, and, and, and this is their business. They don't put on uh, uh, any airs. Like, this is, this is the way they make their, this is their livelihood. And you can go up and talk to them about just about anything. The fact that you've come to the show Means something to them mm-hmm. I mean obviously you can get you, you can uh, have the unfortunate circumstance where you may have uh, uh, an artist not in the best mood that happens
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: but you know but we all have that yeah but yeah. that's human and and that's the whole thing there, there's human interaction there that you're missing at big shows and there's a lot of people that, not, again, these are fringe, but they see blues as lowbrow. And they still have it in their heads that these guys aren't being paid. You probably gave them a bottle of whiskey and they got up there and played. Hmm. Like, I, I got some of that. And I was, I was just dumbfounded. Like, do people actually think like that? <laughs> Can I ask...
1: Why you don't do it anymore? Or would you prefer not to talk about that? Uh,
0: well, there, there, are just there isn't an opportunity really, uh, outside of some you know personal ple- uh, pressures. There, there, there are. There's no venue. Right. We're talking uh, about Toronto, by the way. There's no real venue that that uh, continually puts on uh, uh, roots or. Uh, unless you you're going to go to the Dakota or somewhere like that, mm-hmm. uh, there really aren't any venues. Uh, certainly, from my own uh, experience, um, uh, I I dealt primarily with U.S. artists. With the U.S. dollar, makes it difficult. Mm-hmm. So there there's barriers. There there's definitely barriers to doing it. And and plus the fact that. I, I hate to say it, but uh, Toronto doesn't have a big blues scene anymore. Uh, like when 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 Blues for a Big Town was doing well in the 90s, all the, all that audience they've moved on. Mm-hmm. They've they're older, they have families. Uh, you it's not like the old days. Uh, you can't smoke in a bar anymore. Like that that whole atmosphere is gone. Uh, you you're more socially responsible now, which you should have been, I guess. But, you know, uh, in those days, you go out and have a few drinks and get in the car and drive. (laughs) Eyes the good old days. (laughs) But but it is crazy
1: that you could go an hour or an hour and a half east or west or north, and there's, you know, there's Hamilton, there's Ajax, there's Kitchener and maybe even buried, there's Collingwood, there's some scenes happening there, like a, an artist could come and play in those venues, but for whatever reason, Toronto, with its three-plus million people, can attract 250 people into a bar for a blues show. Not, not all blues shows, but...
0: Well, I, I, I think the media plays a role, too, though, obviously. You're not hearing blues on the radio. Right. You're not really hearing Roots on the radio. You're not hearing soul music on the radio. And the stuff, <laughs> I'm gonna sound like a geezer now, but the stuff that they pass off is R&B now, <laughs> is pop. I mean, I, I had a, I had a, oh, this is gonna sound bad. But, uh, I won't mention names. Uh, there, there's a, a, a very big artist, Uh, a group, a band, that was just recently in Toronto to play the ACC. And uh, the leader of the band picked this opening act and decided that this person was going to open uh, for them for their whole tour. And, you know, I I am sort of becoming the older generation, as it were. I'm uh, I'm not always looking at new material or new artists, but I do st- still tend to try to look. Right. And, and that goes outside the blues right. uh, boundaries, as it were. So they mentioned this person, and there was actually a write-up in the star. So I thought, well, this is great, you know? A young R&B singer, 23 years old. You know, you never know. You might... You might personally discover Adele again, you know. So I went on YouTube. I clicked three times. I didn't last 15 seconds on on any of the videos. I just said, this is, you've got to be kidding me.
1: <laughs> but I do think that, you know, but, being uh, our age, I don't think it's supposed to speak to us in the same well, way
0: that. Well, how about Rag and Bone Man?
1: Mm-hmm, that's great. How about great. Human? Yeah, that's a great song.
0: <laughs> like That's like a bolt out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. Um, I could put on like I uh, I can't remember how I got around to Human I think it was Lefzitz I think it was Elton John actually right who said it was a song that was overlooked anyway I I put Human on and I went well, oh, this is something uh, I can't remember the names of the various songs cause I don't own anything but everything I clicked on was this is interesting. Like, there's some heart and soul there. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's, unfortunately, that's an anomaly.
1: Mm-hmm. When you think about the forty or 50,000 albums that come out every year, it's crazy that there's just, there seems to be so few. I know that there's many, many more, but what are the chances of us finding out about it?
0: Well, that's it. Well, the media doesn't, uh, you don't hear it on the radio. The The... Uh, the uh, newspapers aren't selling, so they're picking up wire stories. Right. Uh, so they're they're you know you might get Nick Cruan writing something in the Star, but uh, you don't get reviews uh, a lot of reviews on on anything Roots. Uh, uh, it's uh, you know maybe if Lucinda Williams comes to town, they're going to write about Lucinda Williams, mm-hmm. uh, but it's not the you know. The usual fare is not written about. I do. Can I put in a plug for somebody I'm listening to right now? Yes, please. I love Shannon McNally, and I'm late to the party. Uh, she's probably got about 10 albums out. I think she's got 10 CDs. I own three of them. She's originally from New York State, and she's living somewhere in Mississippi. Um, How did you find her? I found her uh, sort of twists and turns, uh, I don't know if you know who Bobby Charles is. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, Bobby Charles did uh, did an album on Bearsville, uh, where, where he did small town talk. He's written a bunch of terrific songs, Great. and it's sort of the album that everybody goes to, n- not knowing that he had a previous life on Chess Records with See You Later Alligator before Bill Haley and the Comets. Um, anyway she developed a friendship with him and she cut a CD that's basically that album not all of the songs and put some other Bobby Charles and he was sort of he was sort of there in guidance. and guidance dr. John with most of his 9/11 band or what's it called
1: it used to be the 9/11
0: Anyway, they play on there. Yeah. Plus, uh, Mickey Raphael plays uh, harp on it, and he's a fabulous harp mm-hmm. player. He plays on Small Town Talk, uh, the song itself. And I was just like, who is this? So I went on to YouTube, and her, the whole album was there. So I listened to the whole album while I went out and bought it.
1: That's and, the way it's supposed to work.
0: Well, and I, I still buy stuff. I don't download anything. and then Plus, I'm... I'm I'm a geezer, I'm archaic. Uh, anyway, <clears throat> I found this other album called Geronimo, which is great. It's with uh, Charlie Sexton. Charlie Sexton produced it. She, she at that time anyway, she was uh, playing with the Sexton brothers, Will and Charlie Sexton. So she's got to have something if she's playing with Charlie Sexton, as far as I'm concerned. Anyway. I, so i'm 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 listening to these and i and i I thought well I'm, I'm going to keep an eye on her and it turns out that she's got a new CD produced by uh, Rodney Crowell who I love mm-hmm. and uh, you're familiar with the band song it makes no difference mm-hmm probably Rick Danko's shining mm. moment as well as Robbie Robertson's shining moment as a songwriter she does a a very compelling uh, rendition of the song it doesn't it's, it doesn't go where Rick Danko's goes because I don't think she, anybody can touch that but it's full of full of ache it's great uh, the, the CD's called Black Irish it's Americana she does a Muddy Waters song. She does, uh, Lou Harris is on it. Rodney Crowell is on it. It's cut in Nashville. Uh, uh, Colin, uh, I'm not gonna say Colin James. Colin? Linden. Lyndon, is on it. Uh, it's a fabulous album. Uh, my two favorite albums are William Bell's This Is Where I Live and, and uh, Shannon McNally, uh, Black Irish. She's fabulous spoken like a true promoter
1: see <laughs> if you're still doing promotion you'd be bringing
0: her in I would actually uh, as you know I, I stage manage mm-hmm. uh, Beecher's Jazz have been for the last 20 years and I told Lido I wasn't interested in booking I did end up booking uh, Paul Reddick and Monkey Junk but uh, he said well you know who's good and I said well the two best albums this year are uh, Shannon McNally, Black Irish, and William Bell. This is where I live. Who, who's William Bell? And I said, he's a soul singer from the 60s. He's 77 years old. He said, well, I don't know. And I said, who's Shannon McNally? And I, I said, well, let's go no further. <laughs> it never went any further than that. But yes, if, if I was booking, I would be bringing her in today. I'm sure.
1: Um, I'm going to ask you my final question. Oh. In the time that, that you did the promotion, and there were some really memorable shows, and I, I certainly were grateful to be there, is there is there a tour or, or a show that, that you put on that I know there's probably more than one, but that you often go back to and relive that, that brings you back fond memories? Um, hmm. I guess, in a way, not only just the great performances, because most of the shows were great performances, but where, as a promoter, things just aligned the proper way and you got the response you you wanted for the band that Uh, you
0: got. Well, there's a number of them, but just off the top of my head, uh, uh, and I'm going to to give you um, uh, a club date, and I'm going to give you a... um, a festival date. The club date was the the first show with Sugar Ray Norsia. Mm-hmm. It was at the Rainbow Bistro. Uh, Sugar and I had talked a couple of times on the phone. Um, I really didn't know a lot about him. Um, I I can't remember who I was actually trying to book with Patrick Day, but he was pushing sugar and saying you know he's no longer with room full of blues i had heard him on a couple of compilations and he's and patrick sent me sweet and swinging mm-hmm. uh, his last thing with rounder i was just taken by this guy and uh, i'm talking to him on the phone and i said so you're going to do a lot of stuff from sweet and Swingin'? And I knew some of the roomful stuff, but it, right. it never registered. And he said, "Well, I got to be truthful." He says it's going to be really based in Chicago blues. Said, really, because Sweet and Swingin' is a lot of jazz, a, a lot of uptown blues. Right. So he comes on, and and we hit it off immediately. Well, Sugar's such a mm-hmm. you know, he's a sweet guy. Uh, Anyway, so they come on. And I can't remember what the first song was. But he blows harp, and it's like the roof is going to come off. And it was so forceful. And I'm, I'm like, because I introduced him. I said, this is this guy is one of the best singers in the business. And I said, uh, that's the way I introduced him. And he came, comes on, and he plays the first show. And it's just... Like I say, he just blows the roof up, and his vocals are so good. And his harp playing is so good, and his band is so tight. And, and, it, and it, was, it was before Monster Mike joined the band, and it's so great. And I, 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 I was just, the, the place was jammed, and my jaw's at my knees. And I, I said, well, I knew you were a harp player. I said, but that was unbelievable. And I I came out the second set, and I said, oh, by the way, he blows harp. (laughs) That's one that really sticks in my mind. The other one was having Johnny Rawls at at Waterfront Blues. Mm -hmm. It's a Sunday afternoon. Johnny and I are talking, and we've known each other for a bit. And so he says, "Um, of course, he doesn't know who else is on the bill. And so he uh, said, well, you know, am I headlining? I said, no, you're not. I said, Teenie is going to headline. He just looked at me and he said, you tell Miss Tucker that I'm going to make her work. <laughs> so, okay. So he gets up, and he turns this Sunday afternoon into... A southern juke joint it's uh an eight it's an eighteen plus show, <laughs> <laughs> and some of the people are just can't believe it and i just he just took this show over like teeny was fabulous mm-hmm. and I love teeny to death. I just think teeny is is wonderful, but Johnny just took this thing over it was. It was such a memorable show, and and um, what what was great about it was that it was a Southern Soul show. Right. Like, I got my eyes on you. I got my eyes oh. on you. <laughs> he could take he could take one song and stretch it for fifteen minutes, and you didn't care. Yeah, because he was working the audience. It was it was Southern Soul showmanship and it was the real thing
1: yeah he's definitely the real i mean deal.
0: this guy was his band leader for ov right and then after ov right passed he led the same band as the ov Wright band for i don't know another five years or something it's the real thing mm-hmm.
1: thank you so much for spending this time with me really appreciate it
0: thank you for doing this well thank you for having me it was uh, actually enjoyable <laughs> <laughs>
1: Not the pain that you thought you'd go through.